we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In the year leading up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the biggest scandals in American political history. This is number 47, the election of 1876. May 10th, 1876, Fairmont Park, Philadelphia. Over 180,000 Americans gathered to listen to President Ulysses S. Grant launch the Centennial Exposition, a six-month-long event commemorating America's 100th birthday. Grant's speech was short and uninspiring. It was obvious, even to him, that his presidency was nearing its end. The years of scandal in both his administration and Congress had tarnished the former general's reputation. By the time he left the dais, no one was sad to see him go. The guests were ready to move along and see all the attractions. American life was on display for all to see. The exhibit with the most buzz was the enormous Corliss steam engine, a goliath of American industry that helped power the factories and mills. Between 8 and 10 million tourists would walk through the park and gaze at these displays of American greatness. But it was all smoke and mirrors. For almost 12 years, the country had been reeling from the bloody and devastating Civil War. Between Grant's parade of scandals and the poor handling of Southern Reconstruction, America was in need of soul-searching. The upcoming election brought the promise of a cleansing, a new beginning. What America got instead was one of the most disputed, controversial, and consequential presidential elections in its young history. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
Before the Civil War was even over, President Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet were discussing what to do with the southern states once they were defeated. As early as December 1863, Lincoln had proposed pardons for any Southerners who swore a loyalty oath. If 10% of a state's qualified voters, white men, pledged their loyalty, they would be allowed to elect a new state government and send representatives to Washington. The plan was divisive, as was everything Lincoln did. But Lincoln was re-elected in 1864, and as the war slowed to an end, all signs pointed to his plan for reconstruction. Until one rogue Southern actor derailed everything. When John Wilkes Booth assassinated Lincoln in April 1865, he not only altered the course of history for the United States, but for the South specifically. Vice President Andrew Johnson, a Democrat whose roots lay with the South, was sworn in as president, and the Reconstruction problem now fell into his lap. A racist and a raging alcoholic, Andrew Johnson was unequivocally the wrong man to lead the Reconstruction. He let the Southern states hold their own elections, create their own governments, and draft their own state constitutions as they wished. The results were disastrous. Enter the Black Codes. While the specific laws varied among the states, their unified purpose was to limit the freedom of blacks as much as possible. As one South Carolina politician brazenly put it, quote, the general interest of both the white man and the Negro requires that he should be kept as near to his former condition as law can keep him. Going hand in hand with the black codes was an escalation of racial violence. In the summer of 1866, both Memphis and New Orleans saw riots and massacres by the white population that left over 100 black citizens either dead or injured. In the North, the radical Republicans were outraged. To them, the violence proved that Johnson was incapable of handling the South. The Republican-controlled Congress decided to fight back. The first thing they did was refuse to acknowledge the new Southern congressmen who'd been sent to Washington, many of whom were former Confederates. We mean that literally. When roll call was taken at the beginning of the first session, the clerk purposely skipped over the Southerners. Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution gives both houses the right to refuse newly elected members their seats if they are deemed unfit. So, by refusing to acknowledge the new representatives, their seats were technically considered vacant. The South had no say over federal legislation. Once that was taken care of, the next order of business was to ensure black suffrage. It was clear that the South was going to do their damnedest to stifle voting rights. The solution? The 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment has three major clauses. First, it ensures that any person born in the United States was automatically a citizen. Second, it declares that no state can deny a person due process. And finally, no state can deny a person equal protection under the law. 
The bill also declared that anyone who had sworn an oath to protect the Constitution, but then engaged in an insurrection against it, i.e. any Southern official who joined the Confederates, was no longer allowed to hold public office. Getting the amendment ratified in the South was going to be tough, so the Republicans found a way to force their hand. They passed the Reconstruction Act of 1867, which divided the South into five military districts controlled by the United States Army. The only way a state would be readmitted into the Union was if they ratified the 14th Amendment. For the next few years, many Southern states chose to live with the Union Army rather than ratify the amendment. President Johnson, of course, tried to veto every bill the Republican Congress sent him. But in 1868, he was replaced by the former Union war hero, Ulysses S. Grant, who resoundingly won the electoral vote 214 to 80. With a Republican in office, there was hope that stability could be restored. However, Grant's presidency was marred by scandal. He had a bad habit of putting his faith in the wrong people. Instead of trusting career politicians, he turned to military men who had little to no understanding of how things like the economy worked. For eight years, Americans opened their newspapers almost every morning to read about some new indefensible act committed by the Grant administration. In 1869, Two Wall Street investors, Jay Gould and James Fisk, conned the president into pausing his currency buyback program, which sent the value of gold into a tailspin. The stock market dropped 20% in one day, leaving the economy in ruins. This was just the beginning. Before the 1872 elections, word got out that Vice President Schuyler Colfax, along with several members of Congress, had taken bribes from the Credit Mobilier Construction Company five years earlier. Shockingly, Grant still won re-election by an even bigger margin than last time. Had he known what the next four years would have been like, he probably would have wished he'd lost. Nine months into his second term, a wave of banking firms filed for bankruptcy and the economy collapsed again. Wages were cut, labor strikes broke out. Up until the 1930s, this period was known as the Great Depression. And then in 1875, the Whiskey Ring scandal broke. Members of Grant's administration had worked with Midwestern distillers to defraud the IRS, lining their pockets with millions. And yet, that was still not the end. In the spring of 1876, Congress discovered that Secretary of War William Belknap had received kickbacks in exchange for military appointments. Belknap resigned, but that didn't stop the House from drafting articles of impeachment and calling 40 witnesses to testify against him. This scandal was the icing on the cake for Grant's legacy. For eight years, the administration and the Republicans as a whole had been nothing but corrupt and dishonest. The Democrats saw 1876 as their chance to seize back power. And for the Republicans, the election offered a chance for rebranding. 
to distance themselves from the myriad scandals they had to answer for. What resulted was the nominations of two of the safest possible presidential candidates from both parties, and one of the most controversial outcomes in election history. Coming up, the Republicans battled to choose a nominee for president, while the Democrats easily pick a man known for fighting corruption. Now, back to the story. In the decade after the Civil War, the United States was thrown into political chaos. Beyond all the disputes over Reconstruction and civil rights, President Ulysses S. Grant ushered in a wave of corruption that no one had expected. The Republicans, the Democrats, and everyday citizens were ready for a change. And in 1876, America's 100th birthday, the timing was serendipitous. The joke was on the American people. The 1876 Republican National Convention began on June 14th in Cincinnati, Ohio. Over 750 delegates poured into Exposition Hall to select the man who would face off for the presidency. The front-runner was the recently appointed senator from Maine, James G. Blaine. He'd gained popularity as a Republican. As Speaker of the House since 1869, Blaine had weathered the Grant storm while keeping a firm grip on Reconstruction. He solidified his place as front-runner in January 1876. A bill was making its way through Congress to give amnesty to the 750 former Confederate soldiers still barred from holding public office. In a clearly tactical move, Blaine gave a speech singling out Confederate President Jefferson Davis as a man who deserved no such sympathy. He blamed Davis for being the architect of Andersonville, the most notorious Confederate prison camp where Union soldiers were starved, tortured, and murdered. The speech was more grandstanding than anything, and it all but secured his position among the Republican Party. As was the norm, none of the nominees, including Blaine and the other leading candidate, Indiana Senator Oliver Morton, attended the events in Cincinnati. Rather, they stayed at home and waited for the inevitable telegram that Blaine had secured the nomination. But at the convention, an unlikely name began to circulate among the delegates, Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes. It was unlikely that he would make much of an impact in an already crowded field, but Hayes' name was prominent on the streets of Cincinnati, and a small group was rooting for the hometown hero. To secure the nomination, a candidate needed to win 379 votes. On the first ballot, Blaine received 285. Second place, Oliver Morton, received 124. So they voted again. For Blaine's camp, the nomination was his to lose. Trouble started brewing on the fifth ballot. The Michigan delegates were divided between Blaine and Morton. Realizing Morton had no real chance, the chairman of the Michigan delegation decided to change things up. He declared that there was only one candidate who'd proven three times that he could beat a Democrat. 
Michigan would cast its votes for Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes. What resulted was chaos. Morton quickly became an afterthought as Hayes rose into second place. Two ballots later, Rutherford B. Hayes won the nomination by five votes. His running mate would be a man Hayes had no clue existed, former New York representative William Wheeler. Hayes' nomination seemed to have come more out of anti-Blaine frustration than pro-Hayes excitement. Blaine had positioned himself well within his party, but he still had enemies within the party who vowed to stop him from taking the White House. But Rutherford B. Hayes was scandal-free and had neither friends nor enemies. As historian Henry Adams put it, Hayes was a third-rate non-entity, whose only recommendation is that he is obnoxious to no one. But while Hayes wasn't the flashy choice, his nomination wasn't entirely without merit. During the Civil War, he served as a major general. He saw battle fighting guerrilla forces in West Virginia and was injured at the Battle of South Mountain in 1862. While still out in combat, Hayes was elected to Congress. He refused to go to Washington until the war was over. Once the battles ended in 1865, Hayes represented Ohio's second district for two years, voting in favor of the Reconstruction Acts. In 1867, he resigned and ran for governor. Hayes won the governor's race two terms in a row. He led the charge to ratify the 15th Amendment. Black suffrage would be the only real achievement in his tenure as governor, and at the end of his second term in 1872, he decided to retire from politics. Private life lasted three years. Then he was called out of retirement to run again. Hayes won a third term, largely on the back of anti-Catholic sentiment. Though Hayes himself was unreligious, he played into a wave of fears that Catholics would take over the state via school funding. Going into the Republican convention in 1876, Hayes was popular among the party, if not among the Catholics. But his winning the nomination still had more to do with infighting than his own merits. After all, it took five ballots before Hayes earned a single vote. The same couldn't be said for the other side of the aisle. For the power-starved Democrats, heading into the convention to nominate New York Governor Samuel Tilden was nothing more than a formality. Samuel Tilden seemed destined to end up in the White House, almost as if he was just born for it. As a child, he was fragile and constantly sick, though it's believed he was more of a hypochondriac than anything. Whether he actually suffered from the litany of ailments he complained about is up for debate. But either way, they kept him inside, where he spent his days reading philosophical and political books. He grew up to become a lawyer and never lost his eye towards politics. He even became an ardent fan of Martin Van Buren. When the war broke out, instead of fighting on the front lines, Tilden stayed in the safety of northern cities, working on Democratic campaigns in New York. But it was after the war when he really made his political bones. In 1866, 
Tilden became the chairman of the New York Democratic Committee, which put him squarely in the crosshairs of Boss Tweed and the Tammany Hall machine. For decades, Tammany Hall was the nexus of Democratic political corruption and bribery. When William Boss Tweed took control in 1858, the graft only got worse. As Democratic committee chairman, Tilden was determined to thwart Tweed's corruption. His chance came in 1871 when the New York Times got a hold of the Tweed Ring's account books. Tilden and a team of assistants began scouring through the bank records. With his background in law, politics, and campaign finance, he was able to make sense of the coded language in regards to the payoffs. Tweed was eventually forced to flee New York, and Tilden became the model of reform. In November 1874, Tilden's efforts were rewarded with the governorship of New York. And for the next two years, his name was whispered out loud as a presidential contender. At the end of June 1876, when the Democrats met in St. Louis, Samuel Tilden was chosen as the nominee after only two votes. Going into the election season, it looked like Tilden could be the first elected Democrat in the White House since before the Civil War. The signs were there when, during the previous midterms, the Democrats reclaimed the House of Representatives and regained control over most of the southern state governments that had been commandeered by the northern Republicans. Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina were the only states that remained in Republican hands. With the candidates picked, it was time for the two parties to sell their message to the American people. Both parties had essentially nominated an adult. After years of corruption and disarray, not to mention the Civil War, both sides agreed that the country needed someone stable. In fact, the two parties seemed to have agreed on most issues, namely ending Reconstruction and reforming Washington. But that didn't mean it was a clean election. For the Republicans, their message was to forget about the so-called corrupt Grant administration. Rather, they wanted people to remember that they were the party of Lincoln, and the Democrats were the ones who started the Civil War. When you were to think of a Democrat, picture John Wilkes Booth, picture slavery, picture chaos. They urged people to vote how they shot during the war. Democrats in both the North and the South were able to unite behind the message of Republican corruption and a need for revenge. Reform was the main point, but deep down, the Democrats seemed to be more excited about revenge. For years, especially in the North, Republicans had painted all Democrats as traitors. And for Southern Democrats, they'd spent years living under the control of sham Republican governments, who allowed carpetbaggers and scalawags to have their way with the land. The candidates themselves were at the center of the partisan fray. The Democrats used Hayes' history of anti-Catholicism against him, a move to scare Irish voters in cities like Boston and Chicago. The Republicans responded by claiming that Tilden was a homosexual and that he suffered from syphilis. It should be noted that neither Hayes nor Tilden ever went around and did the mudslinging themselves. In fact, both men hardly campaigned. 
Tilden denied any involvement in a certain rumor that Hayes had stolen money from a dead soldier during the Civil War. And Hayes, too, seemed inclined to rise above libel and slander. But as far as the parties were concerned, dirty tactics were as American as apple pie. Personal jabs have always been the norm. What set the 1876 election over the edge was the violence. In the South, especially in the last three Republican-held states of Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, intimidation against black voters by Democrats was rampant. At first, Democrats tried to appeal to black voters with regular campaign tactics. But they were remembered as the party of slavery, so it was obvious that the black population was going to vote Republican. In Florida, the Democrats decided to use economic intimidation. If a black sharecropper was suspected of voting for Hayes, a levy was imposed on them by their white landlords or doctors. In Louisiana, the Democrats had the good fortune of running a candidate for governor who managed to be respected by both whites and blacks. Corruption by the Republican incumbent had forced many black voters to switch parties. But in South Carolina, the tactic of choice was violence. With the rise of the white terrorist paramilitary group, the Red Shirts, blood spilled all summer and fall. Hundreds of black residents were murdered as a way to scare the survivors into voting for the Democrats. Samuel Tilden was forced to denounce the violence in the South, which naturally caused Southern Democrats to denounce Tilden. In their eyes, he was no different than Hayes. His sure-bet states in the South were now in jeopardy. Luckily for him, in the middle of October, a riot broke out in Canehoy, South Carolina. President Grant responded by sending over 1,100 Union troops into the state, putting South Carolina back under the Republican thumb. The move gave the Democrat Tilden a boost. Going into November, Tilden had emerged as the heavy favorite. In Ohio and Pennsylvania, the state elections resulted in Democrat victories. Hayes knew that if his home state couldn't vote Republican, then what chance did he really have? Between that and the violence and intimidation in the South, he was sure to lose. On November 7, 1876, eight and a half million Americans went to the polls. Hayes stayed home all day, drafting notes on how he would concede. Tilden, meanwhile, spent the day in New York City congratulating his staff on a well-fought campaign. After a quiet dinner with friends, he went back to the Democratic headquarters and found out that he won Indiana, New Jersey, and Connecticut, three northern states that could have gone anyone's way. Tilden retired to his home and fell asleep with a smile on his face. He had just been elected the 19th president of the United States. In a few short months, he would be sworn in and start reforming Washington. Of course, when he and Hayes awoke the next morning, they would both be in for a surprise. Coming up, a backdoor deal puts an end to the long-suffering election of 1876. Now back to the story. In 
When Democrat Samuel Tilden and Republican Rutherford B. Hayes went to bed on November 7, 1876, both men believed that Tilden had won a clear-cut victory. Or had he? As Americans woke up on November 8th, newspapers were running conflicting headlines. Most had declared Tilden the winner, but some, like the New York Times and the New York Herald, weren't so sure. Tilden had locked in 17 states for a total of 184 electoral votes. Hayes, meanwhile, had 18 states, which equaled 165 electoral votes. At the time, 185 votes was the threshold to win. Tilden only needed one more vote, and he was in. There were four states that had yet to be accounted for on the morning of November 9th, Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana, and Oregon. Together, these states held the final 20 electoral votes. And if we've learned anything about the Electoral College so far, it's that the delegates typically caused more problems than they solved. Hayes had a thousand vote lead over Tilden in Oregon's popular vote, so the state's electoral delegates should have been Republicans. But the Democrat governor claimed that one of the Republican electors had a conflict of interest and tried to replace him with a Democrat. In the grand scheme of things, Oregon wasn't nearly as important as the southern states were. And if things were so heated in Oregon, what was going to happen when South Carolina turned in their vote? Then, seemingly out of nowhere, the Times changed the unofficial results posted outside their building. Hayes 185, Tilden 184. It made no sense to either side, especially given the news of voter fraud and intimidation in the South. By the end of the day, both sides were claiming victory, despite the fact that nothing had been made official. It was obvious that the Republicans would refuse to accept a Democrat victory because of the voter intimidation they'd caused. And Democrats would refuse a Republican victory because Tilden had won more of the popular vote by roughly a quarter million more votes. On December 6th, the delegates to the Electoral College finally met at their respective state capitals to officially record their votes for president. Though it was obvious how 34 states were going to vote, those last four were still up in the air. Given the bitterness between the parties in those four states, the vote itself was not going to be enough to settle things. In all four states, the Democrats and Republicans both sent their own electoral certificates to Washington claiming their man was the winner. That's right. Each party claimed that their certificate was the official one, even if it wasn't signed by the state's governor. South Carolina was further thrown into chaos when both the Republican and Democratic candidate claimed victory as governor as well, leading to questions about who should even be signing the electoral certificate in the first place. Amidst all the chaos, December 6th ended with a stalemate. The Electoral College had seen its share of ties and faithless electors. But what do you do when the votes themselves are in question? The Constitution doesn't have an answer. Under the 12th Amendment, 
once the certificates from each state are sent to Congress, it's the job of the President of the Senate to open and count them. The wording is vague and doesn't account for the unforeseen possibility that some states would send two different certificates. Normally, the title of President of the Senate would fall to the Vice President. But in Grant's final years in office, there was no VP. His first vice president, Schuyler Colfax, had been dropped from the ticket after the Credit Mobilier scandal. And his replacement, Henry Wilson, had died of a stroke in 1875. So instead, the task fell to the president pro tempore, Senator Thomas Ferry, a Republican from Michigan. Ferry was in a bind. As a Republican, many assumed he would just read out the Republican certificates from the disputed states and call it a day. Democrats, meanwhile, argued that they should throw out the four disputed states entirely and follow the rest of the set of rules set by the Twelfth Amendment. Since neither candidate had a majority, the House votes on president, while the Senate votes on vice president. Of course, with the Democrats holding a majority in the House, this meant that Tilden would win. Republicans scoffed at the idea, but both sides knew something needed to be done. On December 7th, Iowa Congressman George McCrary proposed that they settle the dispute in a bipartisan committee made up of four Democrats and three Republicans. As soon as the resolution passed, the Senate created a committee of their own. This one comprised of four Republicans and three Democrats. With two competing election committees, nothing had really been solved. Eventually, it was agreed that the two committees should combine their efforts into a single electoral commission. But this meant the Republicans and the Democrats were evenly divided, seven and seven. They'd be locked in a stalemate forever. Republicans proposed adding members of the Supreme Court to the commission. This would have seemed like a great idea in theory. Except that the Republicans specifically wanted Chief Justice Morrison R. Waite. Waite was a known partisan judge and was family friends with Rutherford B. Hayes. The Democrats cried foul. After some back and forth, both sides agreed to restructure the Electoral Commission. Now there would be 10 legislators, five Republicans and five Democrats, and five Supreme Court justices. To avoid any accusations of prejudice, six justice names would be thrown into a hat and five would be picked at random. The resulting draw was three Republicans and two Democrats. The Democrats still had hope. Despite three justices being Republican, Justice Joseph Bradley was considered the least partisan of the bunch. With the right argument, they could convince Bradley that Tilden, who'd won the popular vote by a wide margin, should be declared the winner. On February 1st, the electoral certificates from December were finally opened and read aloud in the Senate alphabetically, state by state. When Ferry got to Florida, he called it for Hayes, and the Democrats called on the Electoral Commission to do its duty. For the next four days, lawyers presented their arguments to the commission. When it came time to vote, all eyes were on Justice Bradley. Bradley voted along party lines, siding with the Republicans. By an 8-7 to seven decision, 
Florida officially went to Hayes. The Democrats were outraged. Rumors began to circulate that Bradley was bribed, and threats were made against the judge's life. But no amount of protests mattered. His decision ultimately signaled the end of the election. Louisiana also went eight to seven in favor of Hayes. With only two disputed states left to call, the Democrats knew their time was running out. They began to entertain the idea of a filibuster. March 4th was the end of Grant's presidency, as well as the expiration date for the Electoral Commission. If Democrats were able to drone on beyond that date, it meant that Hayes couldn't be sworn in. What would happen instead was anyone's guess. But it was a Hail Mary the Dems were seriously considering. But it didn't come to that. On the evening of February 26, 1877, Edward Burke, the chairman of the Louisiana Democratic State Committee, met with various Southern Democrats and Republicans to finalize a set of backdoor deals. The negotiations were all made without either Hayes or Tilden's knowledge. The conspirators met at the Wormley Hotel in Washington, D.C. One of the attendees representing Hayes was future President James Garfield. It's said that when Garfield learned the true nature of the meeting, he got up and left. Not that the cabal needed Garfield's approval. The terms were simple. The Democrats would not filibuster and would officially recognize Hayes as president as long as Hayes looked kindly toward the South once in office. This meant that federal troops would be removed from the southern states and Washington would recognize the recently elected Democrat governors. Racial violence in the South was still a major concern for the Republicans, so in return, the Democrats promised to protect black civil liberties. The Compromise of 1877 effectively ended both the political upheaval in Washington and, more importantly, Reconstruction. But there's some debate about how much this deal actually impacted the outcome of the election. The writing was already on the wall for a Hayes victory. What happened next probably would have happened anyway, compromise or no compromise. Two days later, the Electoral Commission voted on South Carolina's disputed certificates, eight to seven in favor of Hayes, like the others. In a last-ditch effort to stall, at 4.10 a.m. on March 2nd, the House of Representatives made it official. Hayes, 185, Tilden, 184. Rutherford B. Hayes was now the 19th president of the United States. To prevent any sort of last-second Democrat meddling, Hayes was secretly sworn in on the night of March 3rd. Two days later, he publicly made his oath. The fear that Tilden would try to upend the sham victory was sort of absurd. House Democrats did pass a resolution proclaiming Tilden as the duly elected president, but Tilden himself had already accepted that he wouldn't be taking the oath. He famously said, I can retire to private life with the consciousness that I shall receive from posterity the credit of having been elected to the highest position in the gift of the people, 
without any of the cares and responsibilities of the office. As for Hayes, when he got into the White House, he realized he was on his own. He hesitated to end reconstruction policies, but pressure from both Republicans and Democrats forced his hand. At the beginning of April, Hayes declared that violence was no longer a threat in South Carolina, and a week later, federal troops left the state capitol. By the end of April 1877, Reconstruction was officially over. The people most affected were, of course, Southern blacks. The Democrats who promised to protect them didn't. And the infamous black codes during Reconstruction gave way to Jim Crow laws, the long-term effects of which are still felt today. Right after taking office, Hayes promised that he would only serve a single term, and he kept that promise. After leaving office in 1881, he retired from public life for good. Samuel Tilden claimed to retire knowing that he was the real winner of the 1876 election. However, an investigation into the election found old telegrams that suggested his campaign had used bribery to secure two of the contested states, South Carolina and Florida. Tilden himself wasn't implicated in the telegrams, but it greatly damaged his reputation. Up until 2000, the election of 1876 was considered the most disputed presidential election in U.S. history. Samuel Tilden received over 250,000 more popular votes than Hayes and appeared to have locked down the Electoral College. But through a series of backroom deals and partisan rulings, Tilden lost. He was the second person in history to have won the popular vote but lost the election. Before Tilden was Andrew Jackson in 1824. In later years, there was Grover Cleveland in 1888, Al Gore in 2000, and Hillary Clinton in 2016. For a campaign rooted in ending corruption, the election of 1876 proved to be one of the most corrupt in history. Between voter fraud, intimidation, and outright theft, a man was sworn into the highest office illegitimately, and in the process, it tarnished the name of democracy. Next week, We'll dive into an equally contentious election. In 1824, Robert Potter ran against Jesse Bynum for a House of Commons seat in North Carolina. Bynum won the election, and Potter refused to concede. Instead, he challenged Bynum to a duel to the death. Before it was all said and done, the feud would lead to a barroom brawl, a stabbing, two restraining orders, a libelous work of poetry, and the cancellation of an entire election. Thanks for listening to Political Scandals. We'll be back next week with number 46 on our countdown, The Robert Potter Duel. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream political scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type political scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>